So today's lesson is our final lesson in the Christian Mind series. Let's remind us of the title, The Christian Mind Escaping Futility. And it is called The Moral Order. Can somebody give me a definition of what the moral order is? Like the moral code? <clears throat> give me your definition. Um, morality written on every man's heart from God. Okay. I would say great answer. It's not biblical, so, but just in terms of moral order. Be the, how you, like, the determination of right and wrong within sort of a structure that has a hierarchy in terms of how you determine the right and the wrong. That's the textbook definition. Um, <clears throat> a quick lookup of definition of the moral order online without putting any sort of Christian spin on the question. Uh, a body of unwritten social mores and conventions which serve to maintain societal order. But obviously, um, we've got something else in mind if we're talking about the Christian mind, our escape from futility, and the moral order. <clears throat> so, <coughs> Phoebe, would you expand a little bit on your definition? So, basically, um, all humans, <coughs> even atheists, would agree that what Hitler did was wrong. Hmm. So therefore, they all have some sort of moral code, even if they maintain that there's no objective truth. They can all agree that Hitler's actions were evil. They were morally wrong. <coughs> and pretty much everybody agrees with that. Mm -hmm. Because of that, there's evidence for this ingrained sense of right and wrong that we all have. Even if not all of us obey it, it doesn't mean it's not there, I guess. So the, the even though not all of us obey it, that kind of relates to the Romans 1, that everybody knows that there is a God, but they don't give thanks to God. Um, and they, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, so where does this idea or this this pervasive morality come from? Even if it's not um, specifically <clears throat> told to people without the scriptures, they don't have the, um, the special revelation. Natural law. Okay, so, so there's something in the natural revelation Nature, yeah. that, that indicates to us certain things. Like what? Well, I think a lot of people without having known the scripture and that the golden rule is in the scripture, most people could probably come to that conclusion mm -hmm. on their own. I don't want someone to steal from me, so it's probably not right to do that or okay. to kill or to... And I think that also it's pretty clear that humans are smarter on a different level than animals. So we don't live by the rules of the animal kingdom because we're image bearers, even if someone wouldn't say that they're an image bearer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're self-aware. Yeah. Okay. Are you saying where, the, where does this moral order come from as far as um, secular society uh, coming up with it or... Well, yeah, basically I'm asking... What do they, they base it on is what you're saying? Yeah, I'm, I'm basically asking the question, if there is no God, then why does pretty much every society, everywhere, no matter time or place, agree to a certain set of social mores, such as don't kill, don't steal, don't... Adulter, don't covet. Why is it 
that I think a lot of it is from self-preservation. Okay. Right? We we want to survive. We want our our offspring to survive, and so we know that in order to do that, we have to protect ourselves and each other. <coughs> so but are you asking from, of, from a biblical sense, or you want a biblical answer for that, or you want a secular answer for that? That's why I'm Give me both. Yeah, that's what I'm trying yeah, to Give me both. Because um, from the biblical sense, God, the, the word of God said God has written it upon our conscience. God has placed it there. Uh, the conscience that meanwhile when something the Bible says. But the from a secular sense, um, they believe that it's coming that it's an evolutionary thing within man. Someone said from self-preservation and all of this. But you got another you got another area of that too. You got a philosophical sense. And from a philosophical sense, if there's no God, there's no moral there's no moral authority. And if there's no moral authority, no absolute moral authority, let's put it that way, then which means there's no God, then we're free to do whatever we want to, which is one of the thing one of the philosophies Nietzsche came up with, who was an atheist himself. And it drove him mad thinking about that. And he said that if we if we stay on this course that there's no God, because he came up with the God is dead thing. He said, if we stay on this course, he says, then in the in the centuries following him, that man will 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 self-annihilate ourselves. Mm-hmm. Which he did, which he pretty much tried to do Hitler. Mm-hmm. Hitler like embraced that and said, that's true. If there's no God, then there's nothing wrong with doing whatever I want to do. Right. It's survival of the fittest which he also endorsed Darwinism and put those two together and went out and did whatever he wanted to do. So we can never tell anyone that something's wrong. Right. We, can, we can't even use those words. You can only say, I like this and I don't like this, but you can't give it a moral code because once you do, you're acknowledging that there's a moral authority and you're really acknowledging that there's a God. Mm-hmm. Well, and without getting into biblical pieces, like the tension between those two groups of, it's almost like evolutionary. It's like it's better to propagate the species, or it's good for the social, like the, like for the group. Mm-hmm. Not even for good. It's just to yeah. I think forward. a lot of people make good moral choices purely out of a desire to maintain their standing in society and maintain their own. Okay. You might not actually think that. It's really that wrong to do certain things, but you know there will be consequences societally, so you refrain. Okay. Psychologically, there's a part where you don't want to be in the outgroup because yeah. people, I think even, you know, regardless of what your perspective is, people are social and they live in groups, and you don't want to be on the outgroup in terms of evolution because you, the likelihood of survival isn't high. Psychologically, it's miserable to be out there. Which is ironic because the survival <clears throat> of the fittest if you carry that thought to the, to its end, then you can step on whichever weak person you want. As mm-hmm. long as mm-hmm. if you're stronger and you can maintain that you're stronger, you can do whatever the heck you want to but people. Not, to not exactly. Preserve though. yourself. Because well, well to, to extent, but socially, like you want to watch monkeys, you think the biggest monkey is going to be one in charge, and it's not because mm-hmm. it just takes three, maybe four monkeys to take that one out. So the biggest, like social monkey is the one who can manipulate and control others in a way that's good for others so that they can maintain their status. Because if they're too much of a tyrant, it just takes maybe three of them to take that one out and then you replace it. So it's really, it's a weak mm-hmm. position to stay in because yeah, you're under threat all the time. Yeah. It's so really, that's all. Good job. Mm-hmm. And it's really, I've always enjoyed the study of, in college of like sociology, mm-hmm. um, and things. And, because it doesn't contradict scripture. It does the those deep rooted I don't know what you call it, um, those those impulses we were talking about that that we're there we're driven to to do certain things in a certain way because it it you know it helps us be safe and grow a family and practice everything. Those that's God made us that way. Mm-hmm. So looking, you know, studying sociology from the perspective of this is how God made us, it doesn't, it doesn't conflict. Um, so I think, I, you know, 
I think people people try to separate, obviously, theology from sociology, from the, from the study of anthropology. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't, I mean, the, the things that we are, you know, at our core, like, would I, you know, the choices that I would make, you know, if, if food was scarce and I had to make a decision to eat it up myself or make sure my kids had enough to eat, you know, throughout history, what do you, what do you see? You see parents sacrificing, sacrificing and feeding their children. <clears throat> I mean, that's, that's, and you can see us so often that you, you know that that is, that, that is a biological, that is an ingrained response. That we are mm-hmm. programmed in a sense. Mm-hmm. These things that we're programmed to do, uh, I think you can look at that as that's, we are made in the image of God. Uh, I just think that it's just, the more that you learn about how we're programmed and stuff, that I think it, the more amazing it is mm-hmm. to see how God designed us and how that reflects God's love and care. Well, the, the science piece of it, at least for me, is the science of the data. And people would generally agree that, yeah, we measured it. That looks accurate. It's the interpretation of the data. And that's where the worldview comes in. So even when you're talking about yes. if I don't believe that there is a God or a, an order outside of that from a creator, I have to determine what it is on my own. So then I come up with my own interpretation of what the data means. So the Evolution, or we develop this <clears throat> way to preserve the species, something like that. Yeah. Explanations. So, a theologist said this, the world has moral features to it that are best accounted for by theism. What gives moral duties their authority? Like you were saying. What gives human beings their essential dignity and inherent worth? We can only answer these questions with direct reference to God's morally perfect nature and commands. So, if it's obvious from the created order that God is intelligent, is um, uh, organized, is thoughtful, is all of his attributes, all of his visible attributes... <clears throat> then and and those who reject that truth even though they know it to be true they reject it in unrighteousness it still doesn't remove the fact that god exists you, you know, let's say i don't believe in buses and i walk across the street without looking both ways does it matter that i don't believe that there's a bus if there's a bus coming and it's going to not it's going to cream into me. No, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> the fact that there is a creation indicates that there is a God. The, the, there is a creator. And from the pervasiveness of this inbuilt understanding of right and wrong, that can only come from the fact that there is someone who put that understanding of right and wrong in our hearts. And scripture calls that God. Um, I mean, there's even a passage that says, when those who do not have the law do what the law commands, they are a law unto themselves. Why do they have this? Because they don't have the special revelation. They don't know who God is from from his self-revelation. They don't know that Moses said, or that, that while in the cleft of the rock, God said, the Lord, the Lord. What is it? Loving? Long-suffering. Mercy. They don't know that. So... Switching back out of the non-biblical understanding, because you know our book is about the Christian mind, <clears throat> we have to agree that because every society has the understanding of right and wrong, and they all line up with each other. 
with the, the obvious outliers like Hitler. Um, <clears throat> I mean, even, even the German people would have said that what he was doing was wrong. There were some of them that went along with it, but they were suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Well, even he had a standard yeah. of law, right and wrong, right? In, you know, that, that he established within his own mm-hmm. regime, because he can't, you can't govern without a standard of right and wrong. Yeah, he he convinced himself what he was doing was okay because he convinced himself that the Jews were inhuman. Right. But even he had that code: it's wrong to kill human beings. I mean, even even in um, societies where cannibalism is is practiced Mm. they don't do it to their own people they only do it to outsiders why because they also have an understanding that killing is wrong and on that note actually uh we're we're talking about just typical everyday types of events happening not the worst case scenario uh, I think scripture makes it clear that we're far worse than we think we are. Uh, but thankfully, God is much better than we think he is as well. Deuteronomy 28, 54 says, The man who is refined and very delicate among you shall be hostile toward his brother and toward the wife he cherishes and toward the rest of his children who remain, so that he will not give even one of them any of the flesh of his children which he will eat, since nothing else remains. And then he says the same thing about the very refined and delicate women among you. So these people in uh, old Israel that were under siege from, you know, I don't know. It's just we are capable of far worse than I think we are. And it doesn't take much thought on... Anyway, well, that points forward. I was just looking at the passage in Second Kings where uh, the northern kingdom, Samaria, which in Israel is under siege, and so this long siege, and these two women come before the queen, before the king, complaining, "Hey, she made a deal with me that we'd eat my son today, and tomorrow we'd eat her son. We ate my son, and now she's hidden her son from me." And the king just like, "Right, like yeah. what?" What depravity, yeah. what hor- horrendous sin has happened in my nation. So it's like, it points forward to that. It's like, yeah, we are capable of far worse than we can even imagine. Mm-hmm. So if you are a moral relativist, what can you say about anything uh, about these laws that that we, we we call them laws but you know eh, I'm a moral relativist so what's good for you might not necessarily be good for me that's your truth yeah that's your truth that's not my truth but if you're a moral realist meaning that there is an objective good that there is an objective evil then philosophically speaking, those ethical standards, they, they, have, they have to be anchored in something. They have to be anchored in a divine source. So in other words, morals make no sense if there isn't a God. Essentially, if there's no God, then everyone's a moral relativist. Mm-hmm. You can't be more realist without having an outside exactly. source. There has to be some sort of outside objective truth, objective reality, objective source of morality. It's a higher level mm-hmm. than you. Because it can't, mm-hmm. can't be another person, can't be a king or a, you know, any, anybody human, because then you're right back to moral relativism. Right. I think also that... Um, that person also has to be eternal as well mm-hmm. because that way the law is the same it does not change so you're so. you're getting right to the the heart of it that because okay so we've got to be careful that we don't 
take the um, the natural fallacy in in this regard. Now, I'll explain what the natural fallacy is in, in a moment. But yes, the fact that that the moral order never changes is proof that God never changes. Now, why I brought up the moral fallacies, uh, the, the, the natural fallacy is this. Because teenagers, on the whole, smoke, smoking is morally acceptable. Now, I'm using an obviously stupid one because... I mean, we all tend to agree that smoking is probably not bad for you, not good for you. Um, and frankly, it's been kind of uh, demonized in our culture. Depends well, on what you're smoking. What's that? It depends on what you smoke. That's yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about not the funny cigarettes. All right, we're just talking about standard cigarettes or, or you know any sort of tobacco. From science, we understand that it's not good for you that it causes cancer, that it does this, that it does that. So it's kind of been demonized in our culture. Well, if you're a smoker, oh, that's not a good thing. So, but, but you see the fallacy happening there in that if the majority of teenagers smoke, then it's societally acceptable that smoking is okay. That's the naturalistic fallacy. That's the fallacy that says, because something is the way it is, that must be the way it should be. This is the old uh, radio commercials. Four out of five doctors mm-hmm. smokes, smoke camel. Right. So, oh, well, four out of five doctors smoke camel, then I'd better start. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it would be probably more appropriate for us to say that premarital sex or extramarital sex um, is okay. It's socially and morally acceptable because so many people do it. Is that the case, though? Why do people always have to make excuses for it if they think that it's right? Right. Because they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, right? Because they know that it's not right. I say it, it kind of depends because some of those things, like discussions with people, and there are studies that, like, if you cohabitate before marriage, chances are that it, it's less likely to survive than if you don't. So there, there's science behind some of this stuff that, mm-hmm. oh, well, that was that. So it's like that natural fallacy you're talking about, it works when you want it to work. And right. Like, when you don't, you just disregard it. Right. I think a harder one for most of us to deal with would be lying. <clears throat> sure. Lying is wrong. Is there anyone who hasn't lied? This morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a little white lie is okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, mm-hmm. to me, when you're talking about like smoking or yeah, sure. extramarital affair, you know, like those are easy for most people to be like, oh yeah. But lying. The lies of omission, those are awesome. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that our society is really facing right now is uh, in the areas of homosexuality and transgenderism. And and people say, why are you targeting these sins? It's like, well, because it's being celebrated. That's the difference. It's, there's, I don't see uh, thievery or murder or any, these, or or even lying being celebrated. It's like, so there's an, there's an issue that there's a breakdown of this, of the God given moral order even for as you know Paul says in Romans 2 even when the Gentiles do do what is right they show that the law has been written on their hearts mm-hmm. sure. and that's also like the, the data it's like you can say well XXXY or you can you know where's it found in the brain and just like there's all that but it's, it still comes down to interpretation of what, what it is or even just well I think I can imagine it a different way and then you start living your life the way that you prefer. It reminds me of that verse in Romans 1. And uh, when he goes down, he's talking about the moral, de- mm-hmm. the decay of mankind and their thinking. And he begins to name all those sins 
Uh, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And then he been filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, it's a bunch of sins. Mm -hmm. And the very last thing he says here, he says, uh, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them which do them. Mm -hmm. And they want to... They celebrate. Right. If, if they yeah. can get other people doing what they're doing, then they can make it acceptable. And they don't have to feel guilty about it anymore. So they try to get society to embrace mm -hmm. those things as a whole and make them bring them in vogue, as, as it were. And the more people that, that are practicing it, then they say, well, now this is the new moral order and we can get rid of that other moral order. And they, it's supposed to appease their conscience mm -hmm. that they're doing everything all right. But it doesn't really. And All it does is harden the conscience. Especially once you codify something into law, too, that instructs people. Like, mm -hmm. significantly more people are fine with homosexuality since that federal mm -hmm. law has been changed. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I just think it's... it's like Erica, I, Erica, I think, makes a really good point that we... society. When you look at society, it's easy to like point these things, but we do that internally ourselves, right? The little white lies or... Fudging this, fudging that, like, eh, it's not really that bad. Well, there's a hierarchy. So, it, internally, we we start dividing, but then we look at society. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's just sometimes easier to look out than look in. Well, even within some of what you're talking about, because it doesn't really fit national fallacy could, but tradition, where we start supporting tradition when just because that's the way we did it doesn't mean that's the way we should. And mm -hmm. the church has been really good at upholding traditions that mm -hmm. later, like, that's just, I mean, Martin Luther, for one. And you look at interracial marriage, I mean, there's all kinds of things that the church has supported, and then they didn't. But part of it was just tradition. And so it's like, even within our own house, without pointing fingers outside of it, there's a lot of things we defend, and I'm not, like, well, where did that come from? We can come up with lots of reasons for it, but it doesn't mean that it's, it could be a preference, so it's not wrong, but it doesn't mean that it's correct, even. Mm -hmm. It's a preference, even like the Jews when they want to keep going to the temples, like, you can, but don't confuse what you're doing. So I think we, it's easier to point outside mm -hmm. than to. So keeping in mind our, um, our topic, and the, the fact that the title of the book is called The Christian Mind. Okay. We have to uh, remember that this, everything that we've talked about with regard to the Christian mind only applies to those who have been regenerated. Now, does that mean that the moral order that the that the objective morality that God lays out um, doesn't apply to them? No, of course it does. What I'm saying is, is that our assent to the fact that there is an eternal God, to the fact that he is the one who created everything, that he has the authority over everything, um, therefore he has the right to say what is right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and because we have been uh, rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, we have the ability now to choose to do the good based upon not fear, not, not fear of the government, not fear of, well, being judged by God, but out of love, out of um, thankfulness to a God who would send his son to die for us. So if we have that ascent and there is an unchanging God who created all things in a particular manner and that manner was morally good, then it stands to reason that there is a specific way in which those who know him and who know the source of that morality ought to live that is consistent 
with the original ordering. That way of living would be objectively morally good because we're relying upon the objective moral truth of the creator. Um, so then that leads us to the question of if there is a moral creator, a, a physical creator, a moral creator, what happened? Why are, is the world in the state that it's in? Romans, um, was that Romans 2? Genesis 3. And it says that, um, that, oh, excuse me, not Romans 2, Romans 10, verse 2 says, talking about Israel, uh, religious Israel, but I think it applies even uh, to other things too. It says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own they did not submit to God's righteousness. And so they go about to establish their own righteousness, get rid of God's righteousness. They established on religious righteousness. They established on secular, moral, and whatever. And it really goes back to Lucifer in heaven. When he said, I want to be like God, he's really saying, I want to be God so that I can choose what's good and evil for myself, which is what he tells Adam. Which is exactly what he did to he Adam. Said, you shall yeah, become yeah. as gods, knowing right. good and evil, so you can establish good and evil right. for yourself. And that's really the base, that's, that's really God's, one of God's greatest, um, I don't know if you want to call it attributes or, or whatever, but man does not want to submit to God's righteousness. And when God saves us out of grace, one of the signs of a Christian, he pulls us toward that righteousness, his righteousness. Mm -hmm. And we we agree with, you know, our repentance is, we agree with you, God, that your righteousness is the final foundation for how we should live. And the world rejects that. Mm -hmm. So you talked about Romans 10, Genesis 3, um, and, and that's exactly correct. I mean, the... Genesis 3 informs us that Adam chose to defy God's commands by eating the fruit of the tree. Um, this set in motion the disordering of God's created order, the disordering of an order. Humans became sinner and creation itself was put out of line with its original moral goodness. Thankfully, God didn't leave it there. He didn't leave creation in its distorted state. He set in motion his plan to restore it all. The resurrection of Christ punctuates that, that plan. Boom. It is finished. It's an exclamation point that points to our complete restoration, which is not yet. And the creation still groans. All of creation. Yeah. All of creation. So, this, this moral objective order, this moral objective standard, how does that, okay, I'm going to say it this way anyway. How does that make you feel to know that there is an objective moral standard? Conflicted. Conflicted. Explain. Well, in one part, there's some comfort there. Why? Because it's there. I don't have to figure it out. Okay. There's a, there's a comfort that there's, it's there. But at the same time, if I disagree with it, what do you do with that? So then there's confusion or anger or just some conflict. Okay. Well, assuming that I'm, you know, the average person, I'm not an outlier on either side of the distribution, right? So if God were to grade it on a curve, I would skirt in just fine. Um, <laughs> 
So that's kind of frustrating, you know, that, uh, you know, that I'm not righteous and, uh, I would have to look outside of myself, but I don't want to do that because, you know, I'm okay. And I get that. Let, let me, let me back up the question and, and, um, give it some parameters. Now that you know mm. that you are right with God, mm-hmm. now that you are in Christ and know that there is a moral perfection, a, a moral, an objective moral standard, now answer the question, how does that make you feel? I was going to say initially it makes me feel safe because I was thinking from like, mm-hmm. as a believer... I'm so comforted by the fact that God has written this on everyone's hearts and that he is the ultimate giver of justice and he will bring about justice based on his unchanging standard. He's not lowered the bar. He doesn't grade on the curve. Yeah, yeah. I feel relief. Yeah. yeah. That's my initial thought too, was relief, that word. Even if there's things that might, like you were saying, might you might disagree with, even with that, you know immediately the problem's with you and not with God. Mm-hmm. So instantly you're like, oh, well, I'm the one that needs to change here. And he can change me, so no problem. Mm-hmm. I still feel com- when someone said or conflicted. I still feel conflicted, uh, like rock, like uh, Paul and Romans said, uh, when I want to do right, I do wrong. Mm-hmm. And every time he gets, he gets frustrated. He's trying to do the right thing, but you got this old nature in you still fighting to do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, I do feel comforted in the fact I know God's righteousness is the righteousness. And I, my comfort actually comes from the fact that I know that I don't have to keep striving to be perfect and right because of my perfection now is in Christ. And there I can rest, but I'm frustrated because even when I go out to do the right thing, I find myself still doing the wrong thing. I, I sometimes say, I'm not going to do this anymore, and you go out there and do it again. <laughs> you think, I told myself I wasn't going to do that, yeah. you know, and you get caught in that pressure yeah. cookers, you know, especially yeah. especially uh, peer pressure, and you end up doing it anyway, and then you kick yourself for it. <laughs> but then you got to go back and say, well, God's given me grace, and I can fix, fix the sin and move on, and I don't have to dwell with that, right. like, with, like pilgrim with those that burden on my back. I don't mm-hmm. have to walk around with that. Mm-hmm. And so that gives me rest. I think sometimes the frustration, I, I kind of feel like what Ron was saying about that conflict, frustration can come in. I, I feel this relief. So I, I know there's an objective truth. It's true that I go to scripture. But I live in this burden world. And I come up, I, I meet people, and I, you know, one thing that immediately pops into mind is some of the arguments uh, around homosexuality and that, you know, love is love and isn't, you know, good. And I really love this person. I'm committed to this. You know, say, same sense of looking at that and some of those arguments and, um, you know, why should they be able to, I mean, and not just, but there's a lot around that. Should they be able to have children? And, like, wouldn't you want a children to have a loving home, even if it's two women or two men? I mean, there's some complicated situations, I guess, that come up with that. And the parents who have a gay child or, you know, and I have kids and trying to teach them how do you interact with this. And so there's all of these how, how does this knowledge play out in my life in these specific situations that, you know, scripture doesn't give us a manual of how to think about every possible permutation of, of how sin presents itself. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where some of the conflict comes in where, well, yeah, that, this makes sense. Like, it's love and I want to love, you know, how do I love this person that I know they're sinning or how, you know, I can only imagine how a Christian who is struggling with feelings of, of those feelings towards the same-sex gender, feelings of homosexuality, feels of. I, I can only imagine that that must be tougher battle because. But then I, it's also a relief of coming back. Like, I know this is the truth, and I know that I don't have full understanding, and I won't have full understanding until. Um, what's that? What's that verse about? We see, yes, that verse. Thank you. And then, so I know that I only have an impartial understanding. And so that's, I think it helps to imagine how it makes God feel. I always find that to be helpful. Um, 
there's a lot. God talks about how he feels about those things often in scripture, and it always helps me to be like, wow, his feelings on this are, are so clear and so um, potent. How does it affect him to see his people do these things and to be separated from him because of these things? Mm-hmm. The, the Christian is not like an American first or uh, an electrician first. First and foremost, we are Christians. Mm-hmm. And we are to regard ourselves as aliens and strangers in a foreign land. Um, and that if they hated me, they will hate you too. And then our defense and our aim is to bring the truth. And someone I love recently said that, you know, the gospel is words. So it's not just a a behavior or an attitude. It's actual words that have to be spoken. Um, It's a war in the mind. I feel like I had more to this point. But it's escaping me. That's okay. It's interesting. The uh, I, I don't know who I originally heard, you know, say it or write it, but the idea that in the fall, that that man is created to be a, a to be a worshiping creature. Mm-hmm. And we're created to be to worship God. In the fall, we start worshiping everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is. Uh, when when Hezekiah comes in to be king in, in Judah, he tears down all the high places, tearing down this, and it says he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had held in the wilderness because the people from since then had been right. giving right. offerings to it. I'm like, oh my goodness, <laughs> we just are so broken in our worship, and if even before we break things down into right and wrong, it has to start with worship. Yeah. So as People who are in Christ, and I think, you know, going to Cal's point of thinking, how does, how does not, it's not how Jeremy thinks about this, it's how God thinks about this, and that comes from an attitude of worship, mm-hmm. like of humbly coming before Him. And this is, you know, Hebrews 12 gets that dynamic. Uh, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So it's this mm-hmm. picture of one, like actually kind of approaching in confidence as he talks about mm-hmm. plenty of Hebrews, but also remembering because our God's a consuming fire. Right. And you know, we, it's only in Christ that we can have any confidence. Any peace? I was just trying to, I've been trying to formulate this question in my own head, but maybe you can help me. <laughs> so the idea of this, you know, I'm sure, I don't even know where it originated, but maybe in the Catholic Church, it was just that, you know, everything bound on earth and is bound in heaven. Like How does that earth? apply? How does that apply whenever they're saying, okay, well, all we got to do is just bound it here. God said yeah. this, but we did this. Yeah, that, that if I'm remembering correctly, that particular verse has to do with, uh, with church discipline. Okay. And with um, uh, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am. Okay. But where is God? He's everywhere. So it's not just when two or more are gathered. He's always there. But in his judgment, when two or more are gathered there and they agree upon the thing that needs to be done, that's what that particular okay. thing is talking about. Okay. But it's so, not changing God's... No. No, 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 no. Do you really think that we have any capability of, of doing something here that's going to change the way God no, views anything? I, I just never right. understood right. What, where that yeah. fed in. I remember now, Damien, so like, yeah. like, he, like Victor was referring to Romans 7, right? It's like, but with my mind, I serve the law of God. Uh, so being regenerate, we can look upon the objective law of God and see that it is good, and because of what he's done for us, we can wholeheartedly desire to to fulfill that law out of love uh, but I would caution us as is my experience that it's so easy in that truth right and with the spirit for the flesh to come in and still have that like moral relativism and and so what we'll do is we'll look at that person that is you know unregenerate in 
homosexuality or whatever the thing is, and there is like this, I would have to say self-righteous indignation that, that kind of boils up. And, and that is the wrong response to it because the fulfilling of God's law, any, any ability of, of that in me is not in me. It's through the spirit. So it's an alien righteousness, right? Uh, so it's when I'm talking about that battling of the mind and stuff and speaking the actual word of God, right? It's like, it's doing that in love. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that um, we've gotten to the point where we are, uh, I think we've beaten this dead horse. Um, thankful very much so that, uh, that God has not left us to our own devices, that he has rescued us, that he has transferred us. And all of these things are past tense. You know, we, we are, we're not still waiting to be transferred. We are transferred. We're not still waiting to be um, called and justified and sanctified and glorified. We are. Currently, we, we have all of the blessings. Um, and so that... That just leads to such a thankful heart. Um, and it leads to an understanding that those people who do not have that understanding, we, we can look on them not with judgment, but with pity. Mm-hmm. That we can remember that we too were in that position. The heart's not totally dead. There's there's another area. When um, the Bible talks about uh, the world getting worse and worse in the last days, just like in the days of Noah, things got so bad with the world that couldn't find many righteous, or just like with uh, a lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, couldn't find too many righteous. And what God, when the world gets to that point to where it is, I think you can get to a point where it's, it's just hard to to not get tainted with it because there's so much of it going around as the world begins to embrace it more and more. God's there to deliver us. Mm-hmm. And there will be that day when God will come and pull us out of this world. Because I find myself getting more frustrated with the, um, it seems like there's a jagger nut rolling down the hill right now of sin and people embracing it. And so much pressure and you go where did where where can I turn because no matter where I look no matter what I do it's everywhere now Mm -hmm. used to it was contained in certain areas now it's everywhere Mm -hmm. in your face and that pressure is intense and I look forward I find myself looking forward to the day when God pulls us out of this Mm -hmm. because it's getting it's, it's frustrating because of that Greater is he who is innocent is in the world. Yeah. And that's that's what the part of what the church is all about, right? It's 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 taking that break to focus back on Christ so that we can go into the world with life and offer hope to people that have none mm-hmm. uh, that are dead. And and so in all those things that, you know, hurt your whatever that is that it hurts, right? Like the sentence. Yeah. Yeah seeing that stuff it's it's a reliance on christ looking to christ in those situations that gets you through it uh you have access to the holy god right so it's like that's the focus whenever we're encountering that stuff we yeah i think it's really super important for us like to have the heart of paul and as he you know, writes the Philippian church, I'm hard pressed between the two. My, mm-hmm. my desire is to, to depart and be with Christ for that mm-hmm. is far better, right. but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And if we realize why God has, the mission that God has for his church in the world, as dark as the world gets, 
And then you'd say, I mean, there's so many times I think, oh, Lord, I would love just to be, <laughs> just, I want to be home. Right. I want so yeah. badly to be home. Yeah. I want to worship mm-hmm. you in spirit and truth right. in your presence. But, you know, he has a plan. Mm-hmm. And as dark as the world is, whether we get thrown into prison or whatever it might be, it's his plan. And he has us there for the, hope, hopefully for the, the, those the, the, the necessity of the lost around us to be the light and soul that we're called to be, yeah. to, to show them their only hope in life and death is Christ. Which brings us to our next study. Not next week, but the following week, we will be starting a new series. It is um, The Word Made Flesh. It is about the incarnation of Christ. It is about the theology behind the incarnation of Christ. It is about why it is such a glorious thing that Christ came. It is, it's going to be exciting. I get to teach the first lesson. Um, so not this next Sunday, two weeks from today. Come on. Let's enjoy the study of Christ in anticipation of his advent. So I mean there's no class at all next week? There's no class there's this coming Sunday ever, right? because yes. there's a congregational meeting during uh, during Sunday school hour. Oh, so still show up at 9? Yes, still come at 9 but go down, downstairs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm really excited about that one. To uh, uh, The timing of it I think is perfect, Jeremy, with uh, the understanding of the Word of God becoming man right about the time is when we need to think about Him coming, becoming man and enjoying Christmas, enjoying His Advent and really focusing on, on what He is, who He is, and what He's done for us. Um, so with that, we are over time. Let's pray. And that will be dismissed. Father, thank you so very much. Your your love for us makes absolutely no sense if it were based upon our own righteousness, if it were based upon any of our own actions. It makes no sense. But thankfully, Father, it is not based upon that. It is based upon your sovereign choice from before the foundation of the world. It is based upon the fact that the Lamb was slain from before the foundation of the world. That redemption was not an, oops, Adam screwed up. Now what do I have to do to fix this? It was always planned to be this way. Father, thank you so much that you know the end from the beginning and you ordain everything that happens. And you do so for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.